Once again, guys, welcome to another great episode of the It's Telehealth podcast. Joseph, thanks so much for joining me today, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Keenan. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So, um, you know, me and you met privately and I was really inspired by your story. You know, me and you are pretty much the same age. You are opening up your own private practice and you're really starting to get deeper into the mental health and behavioral health space professionally, which I'm so proud of you because I think there are so many young professionals who are coming into this space and we're all being exposed to, I guess, the next chapter of our professional lives. And I do want to touch on that before, but why don't you give everybody kind of a background about you, where you came from, you know, you were born and now you're here today. What happened in the in-between time? <laughs> yeah, so... Um... It's been a long road, I would say. I ex was exposed to mental health at a very young age. It was kind of quiet, so I was the person that everybody wanted to sit next to and talk to, and I would just listen. By the time I was eight, I was in contact with people who were talking about pretty severe mental illness, uh, experiencing cutting behaviors and other self-harm, or even going all the way up to suicidal ideation. And by the time I was about 12, I was thinking like, you know what, maybe I'm a little depressed. Um, and that was where everything started. I began to try to figure out what was going on with me and the people around me and what answers were there. Um, and so that kind of leveled out and continued. Nothing was too great or, or too bad uh, until I was in college. College was really tough. I have dyslexia. Uh, okay. So uh, shout out to my reading teacher, Mrs. Olson. <laughs> she didn't believe very highly in me. In fact, when I had my um, evaluation, she was like, oh, this kid. He can't read, he's in second grade, like never going to amount to anything. So I'd love to talk to her again about that. And it was definitely hard. Uh, so with that reading limitation, that informed the decisions that I made as I went along. So going into college, I stayed far away from psychology at first because I heard that it was a lot of reading. And then after one introductory psychology class, I fell in love. I knew that this was for me. And um, shortly after that, I found myself in a major depressive episode. And so going through my own treatment, I was like, okay, this is helpful, but there's got to be something else. And now if we fast forward from, let's say, probably like 2010 to 2017, big jump, um, I had the opportunity to take a uh, workshop in rationally motive behavioral therapy okay. that was provided by uh, the Albert Ellis Institute. And that's really like from day one, when I sat down and experience that workshop. I was like, this, this is what therapy is supposed to sound like. And I personally use this approach to take myself from a period of my life where I was experiencing major depressive episodes, you know, maybe multiple times in a year to not having a single depressive episode since, since taking that workshop, to be quite honest. And it's just been an evolution from there. Wow. That's incredibly powerful. You know, being able to be exposed to those enlightening moments, I think is so important. And you talked about in the very beginning of your introduction, you know, yeah. you being at a young age and people feeling comfortable and coming to speak to you. What mm -hmm. were some of those early experiences like? Was that in school? Was that your friends who were hanging out with you after school? How were you exposed to some of those early conversations? That's really interesting mm -hmm. to me. Yeah, it was quite literally sitting around the, the lunch table. In fact, I had, um, one friend who was particularly depressed at a, you know, again, a very young age, we're talking elementary school. So that's atypical, I would say. You don't usually see such severe pathology at, at a young age. And I didn't know it was pathology then, you know, I was just sitting, listening and hearing somebody my own age. I, it, I remember just being such a jarring experience to hear that they didn't want to live anymore. 
Mm. It was just really profound. And so um, with that friend, I had the opportunity to walk with them through a lot of very difficult moments in their life. Um, and I'm happy to say that many years later, I received an invitation to uh, this person's wedding. Uh, and in that uh, sharing how impactful just the ability to listen and have somebody to turn to in those moments was for them. That's incredibly powerful to me um, because, you know, when we're younger, we don't have many stresses from the outside world, right? As you become an adult, you start to experience life coming at you so much more intensely. And so when you're around the lunch table and you're a young kid, sometimes kids only have the opportunity to share those feelings with their friends. And being able to kind of work through some of those feelings, I think at a young age, you were very receptive to learning about what was going on and taking the interest in your friend enough to be able to say, let's talk about some of these things. Did you ever bring up any of those issues to either the teachers in your school? Did you kind of share that experience? Did you kind of talk about your with that with your parents at all? What was that experience like? Because I know as an eight-year-old, you probably didn't have all the understanding of what I should say. So I'm wondering kind of how you navigated that. No, in fact, that was a lot of the struggle. You're very insightful picking up on that uh, because it wasn't until I was in college that I understood that that was an option or that it was a thing. Um, there weren't many adults involved and because of how um, the conversations unfolded and the delicate nature of them, very often, regardless of who I was talking to, the people wanted it to stay private. And so it, it became that that was actually part of what was um, my own personal struggle by the time I hit 12 through high school, things like that, just feeling like, wow, these people are suffering so significantly. They're telling me, I don't know who to turn to. I don't know who has the answers for this. And uh, it was definitely a, a turbulent time hearing that. Um, so in short, no, there, there wasn't really anywhere to turn to. And to that point, uh, mental health was still pretty heavily stigmatized. You know, in my own experience, uh, in sports in particular, um, I was experiencing, let's say, breathing attacks. They were calling them asthma attacks. Mm -hmm. And the reason, the main reason for that, I later learned that they were panic attacks. But the main reason why they were calling them, you know, asthma attacks was because I would not be able to breathe and they would send me to the doctor. They tested me for like a lung function test. And they're like, you know, your, your testing is fine, but maybe you have some exercise-induced asthma. Along the, the way, I ended up in front of one doctor who says, you know, do you have anxiety at all? I'm like, I don't really know what anxiety is. I don't know what you mean by that, um, but why do you ask? He's like, oh, well, if you have anxiety, that's really bad. And, you know, it would be years to help you get better from that. I'm like, me? No, I don't have any of that. No yeah. anxiety here. It's just medical, just medical, whatever yeah. it is. So I kept that secret. And that was part of the struggle, which is why now uh, my whole life kind of revolves around bringing awareness to this and helping others through similar situations that I personally went through. I mean, I shared the same experience with you because as I remember coming up through my younger years, especially in school and being experienced to or exposed to sports, right? I was always an athlete throughout my entire life. There was never an opportunity to talk about mental health. The conversation was never really brought up. It was always stigmatized, like you talked about. And do you think that comes from the previous generation who were our parents at that point in time, not having an outlet for that? And so they didn't even understand that those are some things that we should kind of share. And I only say that because I am biracial. My dad is black. My mom is white. 
And the black community has always stigmatized <clears throat> any type of mental health issue as being like, oh, that's just how they are, or they're crazy, or, you know, mm -hmm. just don't talk about that. And so I kind of wonder what your two cents is on that experience as well, and why we didn't, you know, as 30 year olds, didn't have any experience or any exposure to those type of conversations. Hmm. I think that previous generations had just a very different lifestyle. And with the absence of, you know, depending on how old we're talking about, with the absence of a lot of the modern forms of communication, mm -hmm. social media being one of them, um, I think people similar to myself were just left to their own devices. So when it comes to advice for that, it's like, tighten up your shoes and keep going. Yeah. And, and I think that was the, you know, common wisdom of the age. And also I think that our knowledge of psychology and modes of intervention, schools of thought was pretty limited at that. You know, it's not until very recent years that you have somebody like Paul Ekman outlining universal emotions, or at least providing evidence for the idea of emotions being universal core emotions being happiness, sadness, anger, anxiety, and disgust. So if we don't even know how to define emotions in, a, in any sort of definitive way, objectively, until, let's say, uh, more recent years when we're refining it, you can look up the uh, Atlas of Emotion to see what I mean by that. That's not a resource that's too old. Right. So an understanding of what emotions were, how they impact our decisions, and um, what to do about them when they become problematic wasn't really there. I think you said a, an important terminology there for me, which is define. You know, one mm -hmm. thing that I'm very interested in is the use of language and giving us an appropriate language framework to be able to express and understand certain concepts. And when you talked about, like I mentioned with like the black community, when you talk about mental health, it was always stigmatized because we didn't understand it. There wasn't a lot of language and understood terminology that gave us the ability to say and identify, oh, that's what might be going on here. And so that's super, super interesting to me. And so that's why I think even, you know, our modern communication channels, like you said, plus the language that we're exposed to today gives us the ability to communicate these feelings in simpler terms, which gives people an ability to almost self-identify with some of those things that they could have going on in their own lives. And that's super important to me. hundred mm -hmm. percent. And what I've learned more than anything else as a therapist is that everybody has their own language, their own vocabulary, what they call things, what they mean when they say certain things, whether it's culture to culture or even person to person. I know plenty of people in my own family that use terms that are totally different for me. Mm. Right? And so in session, if somebody says, oh, I'm sad, it's very easy to say, oh, okay, that person's sad. I know exactly what they mean. If you're relating it through what you mean when you say you're sad, which is, oh, I'm, I'm a little disappointed. I didn't uh, score as high on that test as I thought I was gonna. I'm gonna have you know a, a serving of ice cream and, and get over it. Yeah, it's fine. That's how I think of sadness. For that person, it might mean that they didn't get out of bed for the past week. Yeah. And it's worlds apart. So language is incredibly important. And diving into, for you, when you say sad or when you say angry, what does that mean for you? What does that look like? What does that feel like? What about your experience cues you into the fact that it's that particular emotion and not something else? That's incredibly super powerful to hear because, you know, as I've gotten older, I've started to put more effort into seeking to understand 
because very much like you said, people identify certain things as different. And so when I take my own preconceived notion into saying, oh, you're sad. Well, when I'm sad, that means like this didn't go that way, but I'm just going to go to the gym and work it off and I'm fine. You know, one of the uh, frictions, I guess I would say in my own personal life is over the last couple of years, I put a ton of effort into being positive because I've gone through some negative experiences and growing my own business and stuff like that. And so I put a conscious effort into trying to look at things on the positive side. And my girlfriend right now, doesn't operate from that same space. And so as we started to get into our own relationship together, she started to think to me like, well, me and you are not the same because you always have the ability to look at things so positively and I just don't operate that way. And so that was one of the early experiences that I had in a personal relationship was, okay, I have a different way of identifying these feelings and I different, I process things differently. And I have to understand that you don't do the same things as I do. And it's helped me be a better partner and a better friend to her because sometimes that's what we really need is just somebody to listen to us. Does that make sense? A lot of sense, actually. Uh, and I often say that we should listen to understand someone the way that they understand themselves. Mm -hmm. It's crucially important to me in, in my own life, personally and professionally, from the lens of, you know, at, you mentioned uh, the private practice and, and I've been crafting core values. It's like, what kind of values are important to me and how do I want people who I hire or work with to interpret different situations? And it starts with these core values, these positive, resilient messages. And so the first value is compassion as it relates to relationships, whether that's with somebody else or yourself. And it goes something like this. Uh, listen with your heart before reasoning with your mind. So you might think that you know the perfect coping skill for this person to get through whatever they're struggling with, but they don't understand that you know them. And so each person who comes in front of me, the first thing I'm trying to do is make it abundantly clear that I'm listening and I understand them and I try to walk in their shoes. I offer a lot of interpretation. So if I think I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is, that you felt very alone and isolated when your loved one didn't ask you how you were feeling that day. Otherwise, I could have glossed straight over something like that. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, your loved one didn't ask you, no big deal. Like that doesn't matter to me, but it matters to them. And that's why they're there. What an incredibly powerful um, communication, I guess, interrupt is what I'm hearing you say and being able to identify and at least have that conversation about what they're trying to communicate. Because I heard a saying the other day, and it made me think of exactly what you just said, you know, people often hear what they want to hear, just because what you say does not always communicate that to them exactly what you're trying to say. So let me rephrase that. What you say is not always what people hear. That's what I should mm -hmm. have said, right? People mm -hmm. are always listening for what they want to hear based on what you are telling them. And so mm -hmm. the misconception sometimes in communication happens so easily that that is incredibly, incredibly interesting to me how we kind of fish for the things that we want and disregard the things that we don't really want to pay attention to in every situation. Yeah, especially in uh, close relationships. Absolutely. So before, so what I want to talk about now, and this might be a little bit personal, um, you know, your, I guess, struggles with dyslexia are mm -hmm. very interesting to me because I was never a good student. I, for some reason, was just never captivated with sitting in my seat all day long and looking at the teacher on a whiteboard. And so I always had feelings when I was coming up about not being the best student, 
not understanding the material at the same pace as everybody else. And I was always kind of going to extra resources after school. And that was always one of the biggest frustrations for me. But it also, to be very transparent, I don't think I've ever communicated to this to anybody before. So thank you for being the person who's going to hear this for the first time. Um, those inabilities to perform at what was expected of me created deep insecurities in my entire schooling process. And it was easier for me to kind of tune those things out. How was your experience kind of suffering with dyslexia at a young age and then kind of having those early experiences like with your reading teacher as well, because I kind of feel those deep in my heart. I want to hear you say that. Well, thank you for feeling comfortable enough to share that. Uh, and I definitely resonate a lot with it. Um, it was incredibly invalidated. And I did feel different having to be taken out of classes for resource room mm -hmm. and taken out to get extra time and trying to understand why was I different from them? Why couldn't I just do what they were doing? And similar to the mental health piece, nobody really knew how to define what was going on with dyslexia. Not that they didn't know, but the resources in the school weren't there to diagnose such a problem. Right. And there was a lot of uh, self-defeating beliefs that came as a function of that. You know, if we're talking about language, tying all this back, I didn't realize it until I went to the Albert Ellis Institute workshop in 2017. The narrative of myself that I was indoctrinating myself with directly or indirectly, which was that I came to the conclusion because of this dyslexia, because of my difficulties in school and because of my emotional difficulties that I was critically flawed as a person. I was like, I just must be messed up. I'm critically flawed, like in it in an indelible way. I can't seem to shake this. So it became how I define myself. And I later learned that how we define ourselves is deeply impacting our emotional state. So incredibly, incredibly powerful. And I keep saying incredibly powerful. So I apologize for continuing to re repeat that sentence for anybody who's listening today. But all these things resonate with me so deeply because I've had those aha moments where I've recognized that my internal narrative is so important in defining myself for the rest of the world. You know, one of the struggles, and I guess we can talk about this as well at a kind of a little bit of later point, but we are always inundated with so much outside input about what we should be doing, the things we should be accomplishing, the people who we should be, what we should look like, the friends we should have, the situations we should be in, but often our internal narrative doesn't align with that. So what was kind of your, in that workshop, what was your aha moment kind of hearing that perception of, the entire workshop and how did it kind of redefine everything for you, which kind of made the lights come on. Can you explain that in a little mm -hmm. bit more detail? Yeah, absolutely. So within REBT, there's this concept of, well, I'm, I'm going to use my own language. I'm going to move away from that because it's a little technical. So if you think of the mind as a series of maps that you use to interpret yourself, other people and events, there's two main categories for these maps. They can be healthy or unhealthy. No one has a perfect score. Everyone's kind of an amalgamation of these good and bad parts. And so the idea that I was critically flawed would be an unhealthy perspective for me, mm -hmm. an unhealthy map of sorts that was guiding me down this road of depression. Because when I said things that were representative of this theme, if you will, that because this map is not something that I'm directly thinking. I don't wake up and think oh, I'm critically flawed. I just experience all these pieces of evidence. Well, I have difficulty in school. I have difficulty emotionally. I'm struggling here. I'm struggling there. All this in summation means I'm critically flawed. And so that process is actually questioned, specifically Socratic questioning. 
So I had to investigate this. It wasn't enough to just have the insight in, in uh, a lot of my uh, mentors in, in this type of therapy would say, um, insight doesn't equal change. So I had the insight into how I was demeaning myself, but it didn't mean that I evolved right away. And so mm. it was this process of investigating. It's like one question that is, is very profound for me is I, I imagine that I have a child, whether that be my own child or a younger person in my life. And I recognized that the reason why I was saying I was critically flawed was because of emotional struggles, shortcomings in education, et cetera. And if I was raising a child, would I talk to that child the way that I talk to myself? If they came to me and said, I'm critically flawed as a person because I failed that exam or because I'm depressed all the time. And the answer was very easily no. So I had to figure out why. Why do I talk to myself in such a harsh way when I wouldn't talk to somebody else like that? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even talk to one of my peers like that. Right? That's not in my, in my worldview, but I was demeaning myself in that way. And so ultimately the conclusion I came to was that I'm not defined by my performances, right? My emotional states don't define me as a person. And so it's, I, I think of it like taking a step back, the gold standard would be, we're all good enough because we're here and we're alive. That doesn't always work for everybody. That's a hard pill to swallow. It's like, I'm good enough no matter what. Mm, I don't know if I buy that. Yeah. So I say, tie it to the heaviest rock you could find, like an anchor. What is an enduring quality about you that's better to define yourself across? So for me, my, my North Star that I guide myself out of depression daily, sometimes moment by moment with, is I'm good enough as a person as long as I seek to reduce suffering in this life. And I love that goal for myself because it's something that I've done already and I will continue to do my whole life. And it's integral to who I am as a person. And that suffering can be reducing my own suffering with a coping skill, or it could be seeking to try to help somebody else do the same in their life. Why do you think it's so easy for us to speak so negatively about ourselves? Because very much like you just identified when you communicate it in that fashion, if I had a child in my life, would I communicate with them that way? Absolutely not, right? It's very easy for us to identify that difference in communication. Would I communicate with my peers that way? Often the answer is absolutely not. I would never communicate with somebody. So why is it so easy for us to kind of turn that mentality and then look at ourselves and be a completely different person? How does that happen? Because it's so easy for so many people, I'm sure who are listening to this episode today, because we all often have that same perspective. What's your two cents mm -hmm. on that? We feel happiness when we're successful in the pursuit of something that we value. Mm. And when we don't get it, we would like to think that we have more control than we actually do. So to blame ourselves, I think generally feels safer. Yeah. Than thinking, oh, I have no control over this. Mm -hmm. That was a random event that happened to me. And we, we fail to realize how often the tragedies that we experience are a product of random events rather than our own inadequacies. 
It brings up a, a term perspective, which I think is incredibly important to me as I've started to go through these last couple of years of my life. You know, I'm a big fan of somebody who's on social media famous called Gary Vaynerchuk. And he talks about everything is all about perspective. And he, I saw a piece of content the other day where he was mentioning that 850 million people in the world do not have access to clean water. So how is it easy for me to get upset when a business deal doesn't go correctly or when somebody doesn't respond to like a heartfelt message that I put out into the universe? It's so easy for us to get caught up in our own little perspective that we kind of lose the big picture of everything because there's been some statistics that have come out over the last couple of years and it talks about you know, the odds of you being a human being and being alive today is like 400 trillion to one, <laughs> which is insane, right? right? Yeah. And so if you think about all of that in the big picture that we're on a rock in the middle of space surrounding a star that's flying through space at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour, when you think about the small problems that we have, often a lot of that stuff is not in our control, like you just mentioned, right? We don't have control over everything. And so that's a unique perspective, I think, to kind of echo based on what you just said. Yeah. So a construct that has helped me with this, because a lot of times people will come in and they'll be very, very aware of the fact that they're not struggling with uh, clean water or food. Many people often refer to this uh, as a first world problems. Right. Yep. Yep. And, and they'll <laughs> criticize themselves and they'll say, Joe, I don't know, like how, like, this isn't even a problem. This should not even bother me. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, if you're going to have a meaningful life, you have to value something. So we value things and it's not until we value something that we have the opportunity to even feel sadness or feel anxiety or feel anger. Think about that. If you value nothing and you're nihilistic, the idea is that, oh, well then I avoid feeling sad or angry or anxious or disgust or anything like that because nothing can move me. Right. But then your life becomes devoid of meaning. Mm. So fundamentally, we have to value things and humans are creatures of pursuit, if you will. That's even why we have our eyes in front of us. So that way we can pursue uh, when we're hunting. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so we're pursuing happiness because we no longer have to hunt for our food, right? Uh, uh, our eyes haven't moved yet, thankfully. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. we, would be, we would have reproductive issues then. Um, so, so we're creatures who value things. That's how uh, we develop a sense of meaning. And when we are trying to get something and we don't get it, then we need a signal. Those emotions are the signal. Very interesting. Right, to help us keep us on track. What are we pursuing? What do we need? What do we need to get next? Yeah. Identifiers that we experience, right? That help us kind of stay on that pursuit, which makes a lot of sense. So the construct is Maslow's hierarchy of need. Is that something you're familiar with? It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when you're, struggling with food and water you're not thinking about self-actualization mm -hmm. so when people try to invalidate their own struggle and say well this isn't an actual problem i have food i have water this shouldn't be an issue they're failing to recognize that for the levels of human needs this is the conflict of the level of progress that you've made yeah so this conflict is helping you get to the next level and if you ignore it and you invalidate it, you're just perpetuating the cycle of struggle with that particular issue. It also kind of makes me think about, you know, conflict as being like a necessary, I don't want to say evil, but a necessary factor in our lives to get to the next level of where we're at. Because I heard, 
I very much recently heard um, something that kind of just popped back into my brain. I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast and this girl was talking about escaping North Korea. And she was wow. like, the condition was so bad in North Korea, the Korea that we did not have food. And so when I escaped to China, I started looking at the world and seeing all this stuff that everybody had. And then I came to the United States and I started seeing all of the effort that people put into these problems that don't even register for the people in North Korea because we are on a lower level of need. We're looking for food. We're looking for things to eat. And so my Instagram following or the things that I'm not getting from a like that I, or the amount of likes that I'm not getting on a post don't even register on that scale. And so that's very interesting to me to be able to frame it in the way you just presented it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And different cultures are likely to understand emotional disturbances and interventions that would work for somebody like that. Like, I'm, I'm gonna butcher the, the backstory, but there was a person in, in a, a impoverished country and he worked in rice fields and he uh, hurt his foot and he couldn't go to those rice fields and he became depressed. And so um, there was a, a conference of sorts and psychologists and psychiatrists trying to figure out what to do. And Western medicine came in and said, oh, well, you need to give him an antidepressant. And they didn't mm. understand the concept. And they're like, what do you mean? And they say, ah, after explaining it to them, they said, oh, well, we should give him a cow as an antidepressant. And in the West, they were like, what do you, a cow? What do you mean? No, 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 pills. What are, like, what? Like, no, no, no. What he's lacking is a sense of purpose that he lost because he can no longer work and collect rice. And sure enough, in having a cow to then give him something where he had a way of working and earning a living for himself and uh, having something meaningful and purposeful to do was his antidepressant. Because we are creatures of pursuit right? Yes. Being able to identify. Yeah. What did he want? Yeah. Yeah. What did he want? And that's an interesting, I want to take that into a segue, right? The differences in, I guess, application of medication is something that's incredibly hot topic today, right? We look at the culture that we're in the United States and we've come from a largely backed pharmacological experience for so many people who have been dealing with mental and behavioral health issues for the last couple of decades, right? What does, what is your perspective on the over-application or over-prescription of things like antidepressants in just like a medical practice in general? What do you kind of, mm -hmm. where's your stance on that? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, no, absolutely. So in some cases, the person will not be able to turn the corner without medication. Mm -hmm. um, with that said, there is an issue of over-prescription of certain medications. And I think that it's conceptualized in a way that is misleading because it's like, oh, you can do therapy or you can do uh, psychiatry. And or. Well, yeah. And well, very often I've, I've heard people say, oh, I tried psychiatry for years. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, did you ever do any therapy? And they're like, no, why would I do that? I'm already taking medicine. And it's the difference between the mind and the brain. The medication is going to help your brain, but it's not going to help your mind, which is the series of maps that you're using to navigate your life. So even if you correct the physiological state, you're not correcting your interpretation of yourself or the people in the world. And so I think that people are quick to say that, oh, if I just take this medicine, I'm gonna feel better. And they trade the way that they feel physiologically with their philosophy of living life. 
it's a it's, it's an interesting fix. It, it's not an easy fix. And I think that's kind of where I want to take this topic a little bit. You know, the concept of effort and result is very interesting to me. And I'll use my own personal experience to kind of frame how I want to talk about this. Um, in 2013, I moved from South Carolina after getting hurt playing baseball. And after I got hurt playing baseball, I went through an identity crisis and I buried mm -hmm. my life in double mm -hmm. cheeseburgers from Sonic and milkshakes. And the, when I lived in South Carolina, it was like a quarter mile down the road. So that was the easiest escape for me to kind of be able to experience. When I moved to Las Vegas, I got into a house with a roommate, Dante, one of my best friends in life. Um, he kind of said, hey, let's go to the gym every single day. And I recognized that I needed to lose this weight, but the journey in front of me was daunting. And so I had to put in the effort every single day to see the result that I see today. I think the culture that we live in today is often so encouraged maybe to take the short route and say, let me just go get liposuction because I'll get the result rather than having to put in the consistent work. And when you said mind versus brain, that's very interesting to me because sometimes the input of a medication is not going to fix the problem, but we have to continuously put in the work and the effort in order to see the change that we get. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You have to become the person who can live a healthy lifestyle, mm -hmm. right? If you don't course correct in some way, like, so, so it reminds me of the, it reminds me of the statement that you made. The insight is not enough. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Knowing that their problem doesn't always resolve the problem, especially mm -hmm. if we don't know what modalities. And I think that, um, you know, when we, even reaching for a cheeseburger is looking for that instantaneous feel good yeah. shortcut. Pills provide that what we think is a feel good shortcut, but without the proper experiences and behaviors correcting what caused the problem to begin with, it's likely that as soon as you pull that medication, the progress isn't there anymore. Or uh, let's say that you continue to struggle while you're on the medication. And that experience has to be very daunting. You know, I can imagine if I was suffering from, let's say, depression, and I'm taking an antidepressant, and this mm -hmm. pill is supposed to be the answer for what I'm looking for, when you don't get that result, sometimes that can be very staggering. Have you seen something of that experience with people who you've been able to interact with in life and just in your own practice and things like that? Absolutely. People very readily define themselves the way that I shared that I define myself based on this. And, and you know, indelibly flawed mm -hmm. just flawed you know here i am taking this medication and nothing works i, I have an experience with somebody who i'm working with right now who has been on medication for years and it was the wrong dose uh. and one week of being on the proper dose of the medication did actually change everything for them powerful or, or powerful yeah absolutely powerful it, it it was actually rather emotional for, for both of us to have that conversation, to recognize that they had been struggling for so long. And this one consult changed everything. And then he began to, you know, reinterpret the way that he operated in different circumstances after he recognized that, okay, this was something biological. So it's always, if somebody is stagnating, if somebody has problems and they're enduring for whatever reason, what was the cause of that? Was it because they had medication without therapy, therapy without medication? Uh, is there an external factor, money, housing, food, water, shelter that is, is causing this problem? You know, 
I actually struggled with just defining who has a problem and what is the nature of the diagnosis, et cetera, because during my uh, internships, I, I interned uh, under one of my favorite people in the whole world, uh, a mentor that I think very highly of, uh, Dr. June Wasserman. And, and she mentored me during my time at Jamaica Hospital. And I would come in and talk to people who were living in homeless shelters and they were struggling with, you know, Maslow's hierarchy. They were struggling with food, water, shelter. Somebody came in and stole my birth certificate. Mm. I was in a homeless shelter and my eyelids were glued shut. Yeah. Wow. Devastating things that, that people are dealing with. So when I talk to them and then, and then it's like, okay, what's the diagnosis? I'm like, real life? I don't know. Yeah. You know, I have a hard time saying that this is major depression when who are we putting in that situation that's going to be psychologically healthy? Exactly. Exactly. And that makes so much sense to me because I see, I see the impact of homelessness, homelessness um, in Hawaii. It's very interesting wow. because often you see so many people who will live on the streets and who will seem to have mental and behavioral health issues. But if you frame it in the way in which you just kind of um, described that, are these people really in a negative psychological state because of what they have going on with themselves or is life just really getting at them? Because mm -hmm. I could not imagine myself being in a good mental state, being positive and being accused of being a good person. If I do mm -hmm. not have consistent housing, if I do not mm -hmm. have supportive resources, if I do not have consistent access to food, that's incredibly interesting. And that's the first time I've ever heard it proposed that way. Um, that kind of yeah. made a lot of lights turn on for me. Yeah, and, and that's that's what I was most struck by, actually. It was such an impactful experience to work with such an in-need population because it brought into question the very textbooks mm -hmm. that I learned from, the DSM-5, for example. I was like, wait, who's, who's behaving well given these conditions? So if you have somebody who, who's on medication, for example, and they're in one of these situations and they're not getting better, there's reasons for it. And, and it's because it speaks to the larger scope of what's leading to their suffering. It's not just psychological. It's not just physiological. It's environmental. It's, it's resource-based for many people. Absolutely. That kind of makes me want to transition the conversation. You know, as we first got to know each other, you talked about how you used to be a part of a group practice and now you're transitioning into your own private practice. So congratulations for that. I mean, a huge Thank step. Um, Were some of those... I guess, group practice practices in general, not aligned with you as a practitioner, as a provider. And that's why you decided to kind of go out on your own path. Or can you describe what that transition was like for you? Yeah. So I think that over time, what I realized was the conditions for therapy are delicate. Mm -hmm. And at a lot of whether it be group practices or community mental health facilities like Jamaica, for example, the need for therapy is so great that it ends up burning out a lot of the therapists. And that's what I felt the, the heat from. Yeah. I, I would look at my, my peers in the field and see them carrying caseloads of 60 people uh, a week. And, and they would see these people in 30 minute increments. And that was standard. That was part of the contract. Yeah. And then, you know, 50 people is still quite a lot. And so it's, it's the balance that 
you need to have as an individual yourself, as a clinician, to be able to provide a high quality service that pushed me out of these areas. I, I want to be able to help somebody as much as I possibly can. And I know that I won't be able to do that if I'm not taking care of myself first. Yeah. And I know that that would not include seeing 60 plus people a week to put food on the table. Yeah. I mean, I, natu real I naturally go to the place of, you know, when people talk about the delivery of mental and behavioral health services, they talk about delivering a service as if you are somebody who is in a service-based business, like, yeah. oh, it, you come in for an appointment, I change your tires out, you give me the dollars onto the next one. This is a system. But when we're talking about the delivery of mental and behavioral health, you as the provider, I, I mean, I'm not a clinician in any way, but you are invested into that individual. And so taking care of yourself is so incredibly important because how can you dole out all of yourself 60 cases across the entire week and then show up as mm -hmm. your best self the next week? That seems very mm -hmm. difficult to me. How are you kind of coping with that kind of stuff? Well, I've, I've coped with by finding better forms of employment largely. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's um, how do I say this? Yeah, mostly that and understanding what my own personal limitations are like for me, I know that if I'm starting, if I'm putting myself in a position where I'm worried if somebody comes in or not, I'm not going to, you know, oh, are they going to come in? Am I going to get paid for this session? Which is a lot of the um, group practices and hospital, um, you know, community mental health settings, yeah. RP for service. So if I'm worrying about whether or not they're coming in, then I'm not going to be in the right state of mind to provide that service. And if I'm getting over, let's say, 40 cases a week, I'm not going to be able to do all the in-between work that's required. And it's often just thought of as, oh, you have to write notes and you have to write a treatment plan. It's not the case if you're doing thorough work, because I never know when somebody who I'm working with is going to pop into my head and I'm going to hammer away at one of the uh, unhealthy perspectives that they have. And it's random when I'll, I'll be going throughout my day and somebody will occur to me because I hear a quote that I think is a good fit for them, or I see a movie that would really help them adopt this healthy perspective that we're looking to cultivate. So the work is never really done. And I don't have those, those insights as often for all my clients. Once I hit certain concrete numbers, whether I know, you know, if it's, if, I'm really worried about somebody coming in uh, or what I'm doing for my own self-care, then I'm not going to be as focused. Similarly, if I have too many people, I'm just not going to remember enough. Yeah. So I work very hard on the practical variables that I can control to eliminate that. And, I, and I, I'm happy to say that I've successfully been able to achieve that, but it wasn't easy. Yeah, wasn't not an easy road. And what you what I heard you say there was, you know, this pops into my mind when I'm doing other things, or I hear a good quote, or I come across a movie that can help them implement this type of technique, or, you know, help them cope with the situation. That makes me think about how so much of our mental health process occurs outside for both the provider and the client or patient outside of the 50 minute session, which is so interesting mm -hmm. to me, because we're all experiencing once again, if you boil it down to, you know, the first principles, we're all experiencing life. And so recognizing that maybe sometimes the fee for service model and getting people in, getting people out, getting people in, getting people out, isn't the best model for this. And so, you know, I'm very encouraged to hear that we have young 
leaders in the behavioral health space like yourself who are thinking about these things and then being able to come on a podcast like this and be able to articulate that kind of stuff because I know that experience is so shared because of how many people I interact with you know that's very interesting to me thank you for saying that I appreciate that and and that was actually the in-between work is something that uh drew me to our conversations Mm-hmm. Because I remember you talked about uh, connecting with people in between sessions with positive messages. Yep. And it, it resonated with me uh, in terms of the importance of that, because when I'm working with somebody, they might have a breakthrough in the session. They're like, wow, I didn't realize that. Now I realize that I see where I was, where I want to go, how this, this healthy perspective, like, oh, I'm not defined by my performance at work. And I'm so good enough as a person, even though I failed that exam or uh, this person broke up with me or whatever the case may be. That's one thing, but insight doesn't equal change. So it requires hard work. And that work comes in in between sessions. I often say that cognitive restructuring is based on two main factors, frequency and depth. Hmm. Once you've identified this healthy perspective, how frequently can you think it? And how many reasons do you have to support it? That's so powerful. You know, there's a saying that comes into my mind and it's about negative thought patterns and it is thinking it is like drinking it because Mm. when we think negative thoughts, often they're affecting our body as if we're just ingesting those types of bad materials, if that makes sense. Um, And I mean, that's why I'm so such an advocate for mental and behavioral health and the utilization of technology because of all the issues that we've talked about today. Our therapists Mm. are being put in situations where they're being expected to carry huge caseloads. They do not have the ability, unfortunately, to be able to nurture the relationship with their clients and patients in between their sessions. So when we can use technology as an augmentation of some of that care, I mean, it's 2022. That makes perfect sense to me. And something that was incredibly powerful that you mentioned in our previous conversation together was, you know, a lot of the theories and a lot of the practices that we talk about are really boiled down into simple sentences, right? Like Mm. just because I failed my test, that does not mean I am not worthy. Can you kind of elaborate Mm. a little on that for me and share that with the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So if you imagined all the words in your head, like the words of a book, books have themes. So does your mind. That's what I look to identify. So when I'm listening to somebody, I'm like, hmm, what's the theme of this thought process? right? That kind of helps me tap in to define that sentence that you're, you're referring to. Mm-hmm. So I'm always trying to see, do they have a rigid theme, a bad theme, a weak theme, or an overgeneralized theme? Quickly, what each one of those is referring to is, are you thinking something that's inconsistent with your experience? That would be rigid. We need more flexibility. Are you thinking something Uh, that's an inefficient thought process, meaning bad themes would be different from just knowing something's bad. Let's say a loved one passes away. I know that that's bad. If I spent the past 10 hours thinking about how bad it was, now I have a bad theme in my thoughts. Yeah. If I tell myself that I'm weak and I can't do this, that would be the, the, this invalidation of our ability to overcome, to be resilient. And then the overgeneralized theme is to say that I'm a failure because I failed that exam. So I refine it down to these themes and then I begin to work. Like, let's say like, let's say somebody is thinking that their worth is defined by whether or not somebody reciprocates love to them. 
that's a powerful one. Yeah. Right. Or if somebody says, oh, if somebody says in your life, you know, you're really not good enough. I said, well, if this person thinks I'm not good enough, then that's it. I'm done for. Right. So I start to think, how do we moderate down the extreme level of this statement and have greater flexibility while validating what this person wants? So the answer is I'm still good enough as a person, even though this person doesn't see my worth Mm -hmm. and figuring out how is that true? Right. So using metaphors and questions and movies and all these different things, you can find a statement that validates your preferences is flexible and moderate. Those are the rules basically of a healthy perspective. So when you're crafting healthy perspective, remember that you want to validate your preferences. You want to be flexible and you want to be moderate just because this person says that does not transform me into a worthless person. I still have worth independent of what this person thinks of me. And beginning to look around and see, is this true? And that's where the work comes in. Where, how do you believe that you have worth? It's incredibly powerful. And I said the same saying again, it's easy for me to kind of refer back to that statement as we have this conversation today, because so much of what you shared today has been so valuable to not only myself, but to I know everybody else who is listening today. Um, and I think that's an amazing place for us to kind of wrap up and that powerful statement, Joseph, I can't thank you enough for all of the amazing work that you're doing. Um, not only in your own life, but for even hopping on this podcast and sharing some of these amazing thoughts and frameworks, because they are so applicable for so many people who are listening today. And I just can't thank you enough for hopping on with me today, man. It's really been a journey. It's been a journey. It's been incredibly enjoyable as well. Uh, Keen, well, thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm blessed to be able to speak to you and whoever uh, this video reaches. And um, I look forward to future conversations. Absolutely, guys. Well, thank you so much again. Once again, it's been another great episode of the It's Telehealth podcast. Thank you so much again, Joseph, for joining us today. Really appreciate you, man. Thank you. 